Welcome to this edition of At The Mic. I'm your host, Keith Malinak. A man who needs little introduction, Dave Landau. He's my guest, and he's coming up next. First, let's talk about macadamia nuts. They're quite underrated, in my opinion. And in coffee, oh, what an awesome combination from American Pride Roasters Coffee. This was such a treat to be a part of this process of creating a new blend, an at-the-mic show blend, after Dave Matthews from APRCoffee.com approached me, asked me some of my favorite flavors as he was working on this concoction, and it turned out brilliantly with the macadamia nuts, and it comes out in a beautiful roast from APRCoffee.com. Brewed right there in the heart of the great state of Iowa. So if you're looking for a unique blend, well, they've got plenty. And the latest one is, of course, the At The Mic Show blend. That's APRCoffee.com. Use promo code ATM at checkout. You're going to get 10% off. I'm looking forward to seeing what y'all think of the At The Mic Show blend. But first, you got to try it. So get over to APRCoffee.com today. You're listening to At The Mic with Keith, an independent podcast production. Dave Landau is my guest this week on At The Mic, uh, a comedian, uh, and so much more to this guy. And it was such a pleasure getting to know him in the course of our conversation today. Uh, you probably know him from his stand-up, uh, from his role on Louder with Crowder, that's Stephen Crowder's show. Uh, it was such a pleasure to meet him, and I can't wait to share this conversation with you right now here on At The Mic. Joined in studio here at The Blaze today, Dave Landau. Man, I appreciate you making time. People have been asking me to have you in here, by the way. I appreciate that. I don't know who, but thank you. Several people on Twitter constantly said, you got to get Dave on, you got to get Dave on. And I thought, wait a minute, the Crowder studio is right here. This is a local deal. So yeah. I'm glad this worked out. Thanks for coming in. Dude, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Okay, so let's go to the beginning. You were born in Detroit, Michigan. Yes, were you? Because you grew up in Gross Point, Michigan. Yeah, t- uh, I grew up in Gross Point, which is like an upscale suburb. Okay, that's what I was gonna ask you. It's yeah, suburb. okay. But I, it's kind of not like I, I, I was born on Seven Mile in '94, and I grew up on Eight Mile in '94 in the lowest rent part of an upscale suburb on the border of Detroit. <laughs> so it's like I grew up kind of in the middle of. There was, like, poverty right down the street, as poor as you could get. Right. And then the richest of the rich to the right. So I grew up in I grew up in the dead center of the two different kinds. Because there's really no – there's not much middle there. Uh-huh. It's pretty much you're rich or you're really poor. And we were as, like, middle class as you could possibly be, I would say. Yeah, yeah. You know, so we were, yeah, normal three-bedroom house. But I had friends that, like, you know, <laughs> auto execs kids and, oh. like, you know, all that kind of stuff. Like – Red Wings money, stuff like uh-huh. that, like just insane okay. money. And then other people's parents sold drugs and <laughs> they really only went to school to sell weed to white kids and stuff. So that was just sort of <laughs> what it was. You know, it, it almost sounds like you're describing the school I went to uh, growing up. So I, I can totally relate to what you're talking about. That's that's great. So, okay. Uh, grew up, you're a Michigan guy. Yes. Now, 
you have a twin brother. It's not conjoined, obviously. No, no. Not, we, not identical. We were separated. You were separated. Yes. So does this just mean that you were born at the same delivery, basically, same time? Same time, yeah. Okay. We don't even look alike, and oh, wow. uh, we graduated different years, so people didn't even realize we were brothers. <laughs> okay. Which had to do with my uh, drug use and his. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, oh, so, we're going to get into this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, yeah, that was uh, interesting. He gra- <laughs> There's no, nothing better than graduating high school a year after your twin brother because you have to go to his graduation party that's supposed to be for the both of you. Oh, no. So everybody's congratulating him like, great job, Mike, just looking at me like, hey, you junkie. <laughs> wait, wait, <laughs> we're... Uh... Were, were the people in the next year's graduating class cooler than his? Or uh, did you, they were pretty awesome. Okay, I mean, I was friends with both of them, uh-huh. so it all worked. Who, who was born first? <laughs> uh, my brother, by two minutes. Okay. All right. Well, I thought you had yeah. something there. But... No, I got nothing on him. <laughs> okay. He's a better athlete, and he graduated first. <laughs> I got gotcha, you. I got gotcha. you. I love how your earliest memory is watching the movie Ghostbusters with your dad. I can totally relate yes totally relate to that time in fact i was thinking about this when i saw your answer in the email i was thinking i wonder if that was like the first t-shirt that i owned that had like a logo on it or a movie reference or something yeah. like that it wasn't sports i should say uh because i remember i had a dark blue ghostbuster shirt everybody had them i don't know if you remember that. i do absolutely <laughs> the i remember the as weird as it sounds the, oh man what is the guy's name he uh, he killed a woman, and it was at a restaurant. Oh, no. He's in jail. He was once a little rascal. Oh, hang on. Yeah, for some reason, the first logo shirt I ever got, <laughs> my mom randomly bought. at a, And I don't even know why they made it in a kid's shirt, but it was for Beretta. Oh. Yeah. Oh, cool. So I was walking around for some reason in this shirt that, you know, an eventual murderer. <laughs> so I have pictures of me, like, in front of the fridge. My brother's in, like, a Ninja Turtle shirt, and for some reason I'm in a Beretta shirt. Oh, wow. That was my first one. My second one was Ghostbusters, and my mom was, like, kind of crazy, so she made us dress, like, really nice all the time. So finally she gave up, and it was funny because I was looking at this Cornholio statue right there, <laughs> yeah. and my first thing she ever got me when she started just not caring anymore, was uh, Beavis and Butthead right. shirt. Yeah, there when I was cool. like 10 That's good or 11, stuff. like right when it came out. Wow, okay. Well, yeah, so it was like... Mike Judge is a genius. Dude, uh, he's amazing. I mean, if Mike, if you're listening, there's, we, which I know you're probably not, sir, but <laughs> we do have a common friend on social media. Please respond to those requests. <laughs> Dude, he's so good. Uh, he's it. just so good. King of the Hill's amazing. Mm-hmm. Everything he's done is amazing. Idiocracy. Idiocracy, which it, is a documentary. Right? I mean, it has become, it, it used to be a look to the future. Then it was, yeah, we're living that. And now it's like, we're worse off than they were. We're actually friend, worse in off. In ways. In many ways, right? we're worse off. Yes. Yeah. There's a lot of, a lot of confusion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. By the way, um, I was looking up your Little Rascals murder thing. Yes. Robert Blake, I just realized. Okay. Right? Okay. okay. Well, I don't know. And the reason I don't know is because Google has come back with this article that is headlined, The Curse of the Little Rascals. Oh, they're all dead. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. It's just one story after another. I'm looking at at least a dozen names and little <laughs> stories about tragic endings. Yeah, those kids were, like, replaceable where they just called them in and were like... Because when you think about it, those movies were, like, in the invention of film. 
like a lot of those shows. So they just call like that's real fire. Yeah. Those are kids in real fire no. and like hoses and all that stuff. No. Like what you see is not a special effect. I'm it's looking. just it's abused children and that was the little rascals. <laughs> yeah, I, and Hollywood I, has always been evil. Right, obviously. <laughs> There's it, nothing that's new. Listen to this. I I'm I'm scrolling through all of these names and all of these little nuggets, uh, these little stories. And it gets down to the end. Tragedy even struck Pete the pup, you know, with the... Yeah, the with, one eye. Yeah. yeah the, the black circle over right. his eye. The first dog to play Pete was poisoned by an unknown assailant in 1930. There you go. Right. Wow, I'm so glad <laughs> I looked that up, but uh, okay. Yeah, if you ever want to be sad, just watch Little Rascals, then read what happened to him. Right. And Buckwheat was the most interchangeable, I'm sure, like at that time. It was just, it's so sad what happened to those kids. Wow. That, I don't mean to laugh, but it's hilarious. No, I, I'm... Just because they, they were so awful. Wow. I had like, no idea with yeah. these stories. Yeah, the Little Rascals is just so sad because producers didn't I, care. Listen to this. I'm just... I'm going to dwell on this for a moment, if I may. You, you have every right. Just listen to this. <laughs> these are just... just these are This is what happened to him. Uh, let's see here. Hit and run. Driver killed him. Committed suicide. Committed yeah. suicide. Stabbed to death. Fell asleep while smoking in bed. Um, let's see here. Yeah. Uh, is this just buckwheat, or is this various <laughs> ones? No. This is... Uh, no, these are all individual characters. Wasn't Spanky hit by a car? Um, let's see here. Where's Spanky on here? I know one of the kids got like a new bike or something like that, and he died, you know, early yeah. on while they were shooting and stuff. Uh, where is Spanky? I'm gonna have to do a little control F here. Hang on. No, we can look. We can go back. But oh. I mean, Alfalfa was who died smoking? Uh, who died? Was it the girl? <laughs> it was. Uh, I don't know. This one. This one is like an. Uh, this. This guy. Is under other rascals' fates. Yes. Robert Young fell asleep while smoking. It doesn't say uh, what, what he his did. character yeah. was. Yeah. But I'm looking for. I don't have Spanky's death on here. Huh. That's interesting. Spanky he, probably had a hard life. He had a hard childhood because he was the fat kid on yeah. that show in 1930. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. And that was before really preservatives. So he was really. Like, you really had to work to be fat. Yes. So, like, he had, a, he had a rough childhood right there. Golly. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it's just sad. Uh-huh. I, I'm seeing that now, and I am not closing this tab until no. I fully absorb this article. It's just horrible <laughs> what they did. Like, they're just the worst in the beginning of Hollywood. No kidding. Okay. Uh, so, you went to Lansing Community College. Yeah, for a year, yeah. For a year. Had you already determined what you wanted to do, what you wanted to major in at that point? Um, I knew I wanted to be some, I always knew I wanted to make film, but I was going to Second City at the same time, the Detroit chapter. Okay. Uh, so when I went there, I just took all the film classes. So I took all the film classes and screenwriting classes and then I left. And I took like one acting class because oh. I just, I just wanted the information. Oh, wow. So I learned how you to. You had a plan. Yeah. So I learned how to edit real film, which didn't do me any good three years later. And then I learned how to edit digital on the first Adobe ever that looked like the Ghostbusters trap. Like it was oh. like all this dig. It was like impossible. Like you yeah, can you yeah, can do it yeah, on your with phone the, with the big big red buttons yeah. and the green little square. Yeah, and you like put it in and yeah, like, yeah it was crazy. Uh-huh. And yeah, so that that was relevant for a year. <laughs> and uh, I I but I learned all about that. I, I took some acting classes like the you know method acting and all that other stuff. And after a year, I just left because really all I did was make like edit film and then party the entire time. Uh-huh. And then after that, I just stayed at Second City. 
I see. I, yeah. Okay, okay. By the way, this is, uh, I'm just showing Dave the, uh, this is what I edit the show on now. Yeah. Which is like the more recent oh. version of Adobe Audition. It has changed so many times. It's far superior. Like anything on your phone is better than anything that was around <laughs> 19 years ago. Good point. And, yeah. and, and I've mentioned this on this program before, and I thought I would bring it up here because you just talked about stuff you learn in college that's outdated the second you get the diploma handed to you. Uh, and for me, it was... I went to the University of Nebraska from 1994 to 1998, and believe it or not, they actually taught us to to take a razor blade and splice. That's what we tape. did. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've never had to use that I've, skill. I've never done it outside of the classroom. <laughs> right. I did it in. Exactly. Yeah, that's, I'm happy I did it, but I I don't even know if I could do it now. Oh, <laughs> yeah, not like, a chance yeah. for me. Yeah. Okay. So how long were you there then? I was at the Second City for a couple years. Okay. Okay. Um, just kind of taking classes, doing a little bit of like sort of understudy stuff and okay. just, you know. Is that a place where you can just go? Is it like a school? What I'm not It was. With. The one in Detroit and the, there's still a training center in Chicago. Okay. Uh, there might be in Canada. I don't know. But at the time it was, yeah, you learned about acting, improv, okay. writing for stage, sketch. Okay. All that stuff. All uh, right. You know, and it's everybody who was on SNL, which was at one point my dream, you know, kind of went through there. So I started writing sketches i ended up doing two plays um that i was really proud of and yeah i but i kept i i like stand-up i like the writing aspect uh -huh. and eventually once i started going into there i just kind of let that go and went full-on stand-up okay so is, is that what you because i know that from a young age you knew what you wanted to do for a living to a degree okay yeah was it stand-up then uh is i mean what what, what did you have I guess as a kid, as your ultimate goal, which of course can change over time. Yeah, it's tough to say. Like I grew up loving SNL, but then I loved John Candy and I loved uh, Steve Martin and I I love these other like I love comedy movies. So when you said SNL, that you're talking about that was your dream from when I was a kid. Oh, okay. My okay. my dad would wake me up to watch SNL with him. Uh, uh, um, like this is like the Farley years, like the early Farley years. Dennis Miller was still on Update. Man. Um, that's the, I mean, that's the era. Yeah, it was amazing. That was, I, I was, I'm looking back on the eras of SNL now. Yes. I am so glad that when I was starting to understand what was funny, that was that era that you're speaking of. Yeah, it's, there's something too about it that is sort of low rent that needs to exist. Because I, I don't want to say low rent, but it, right now it's too digitized. You see too much. I, it just kind of they're going through the motions. It doesn't look right on the way that it's filmed now uh -huh. to me. But the way that it looked before yeah. just looked more gritty. And that's what I liked about SNL was it should have been a gritty 1130 show. Yeah. It came on late at night for people that weren't, you know, I don't know, alive then or watching it then. Th that was rebellious. There was a renegade feeling to going up that late at night. Yeah. And Even it, then. Yeah, and it looked like a set. Yeah, it looked like a set. I've never thought about this. Yeah, like an interchangeable set. Right. And that's kind of what Second City felt like was, you know, I, I'm reading Bob Odenkirk's book, and he talks about going to Second City after being at SNL and how relieved he was even to see, like, old wigs. He's like, I just like that. Like, I like the fact wow. that you had, like, the minimalism of it mm -hmm. is so relieving to a degree because you have to work with so little that it forces you to write the comedy. If you, and maybe you're already familiar with this, I was only recently introduced to this podcast um, with uh, David Spade and Dana Carvey. If you... I haven't listened. Okay, well... If I you, wouldn't in a heartbeat, though. If you want to relive those times, I mean, that's the guests they have on. 
John Lovitz. Yeah. Um, obviously, Dana Carvey and David Spade are there, but they have on there as their guests were their co-stars during that era yeah. a lot of times, and it's just... I don't know. It's just I, I relive some memories uh, going through listening to that podcast, but uh, I'm just trying to think of the name of it here. And of well, course, yeah, there was so much there. Like I got to do Dennis Miller's podcast, which was amazing because I loved him. And then Norm Macdonald was my hero, and I loved watching Norm. Like I, I was a bit older when that when he started doing it, but I mean like 12, 13, you know, and just watching him. Just to, like to me, I was crying, laughing so hard yeah. at home. But years later, when I go back and rewatch it, I don't realize how bad he's bombing just to piss off the audience. And it's beautiful. <laughs> it's just beautiful. Yeah. Like it, just him going, uh, uh, Lisa Marie and Michael uh, Jackson have gotten divorced. Lisa Marie wishes that he was more of a homebody, and Michael Jackson wishes that she was a seven year old boy. And now the whole room's booing. And uh-huh. he, and he, he just it. and he goes, you do know he's a homosexual pedophile, right? <laughs> like he just doubles down on it, and it was so great because they just pushed this. Yeah, and the way that they did it was so like, I was what I liked about Sandler too, and a lot of people have given him crap, but he brought silly back, like the idea of just being goofy. Yeah, and people don't realize how wonderful that is in such this like simplistic way, mm-hmm. and that's why he's so successful. You know, it, there's just so much that that show provided at that time. Yeah, that's what I wanted to be, and that's why I went to Second City. But then stand-up just kind of was something I fell in love with. Yeah, okay. Um, hold that thought, because real quick, before I forget, Fly, yes. Fly on the Wall is the name of the podcast. Okay. But, I mean, if you look up Dana Carvey, David Spade, you'll find it. No, I want to listen to that. Yeah, um, and you're you're right. That era, classic, I make my kids sit down, go on YouTube, we're watching Chris Farley bits. I mean, just the other night we watched, uh, uh, because w- what I'm doing is I'm listening to that podcast. They're referencing these old skits. Right. And I'm like, oh, I got to watch that with the kids. Oh, Chippendales, Chris Farley, Patrick Swayze. Got to watch that. You know. So, so yes, um, you will love that podcast. But now I want to talk to you about your stand-up career. And you talk about comedy and some of these great moments. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm not on stage with a microphone trying to make people laugh. It seems like now in this cancel culture, everybody is waiting to be offended. It's got to be tough to be a comedian today, yeah? It. I mean, it is and it, it isn't. You kind of just have to do it. Uh-huh. You know, it's definitely not as welcoming in the sense of a social media aspect. Like, you tweet something out, you know somebody's going to be pissed off, but you just ignore it. I mean, that's all it comes down to. If you give anybody any kind of leverage... That's where you go wrong. Mm-hmm. Like arguing on Twitter or trying to go at somebody in that way. And people are very weak who want to gang up on it. So it's like, just move, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, you will get people, though, that are easily offended. You will get people that want to cancel you. And it's it's one of those things that cancel culture is real because the idea is, is they want to take away your livelihood for something you said. Or they want to take away anything that they can. And I've had people call clubs. I've had people call places. I've had people try to do that. And it's like... Fortunately, I've been in this for so long, they know me and they know my character. That's what I was going to say. Your audience, for the most part, until you said that about someone calling the club, I would assume they're going there because they want to see you specifically. They didn't just stumble on a post on social media. No, and a lot of them have known me for years from Uh like recovery and everything. And I talk like there's no 
race or sex or anything that my uh, my audience is like my my material is geared towards mm-hmm. so i have it of all walks of life and that's what i like but you you know now you do have people that i think are extremely close-minded and if they go well he's on crowder so whatever you know it can't be this it can't be that it's it's it can only be extreme right wing and it's like no it's not it's me being me and it's my opinions and i'm allowed to have them yeah and, you know, and he's not that either, but that's what they want to label it as. Right. So everything's a label. So it, it's it's definitely a little harder, but I don't know. There's a little bit, there's an element of danger to comedy if it's done right anyway. Hmm. Comedy should feel like you're doing something wrong sometimes, you know? That's well said. <laughs> yeah. And I don't mind that. Like, uh-huh. I think that's a good thing. I think the fact that when you put something out... And it gives you a little bit of that, like, oh, I don't know how this is going to go over. That feels good. Uh-huh. Because that's, like, think about when you were young with your kid and you're la- like, you're young and you're laughing at, like, truly tasteless jokes. Whatever it was that made you feel like that first time you were laughing and you swore you were going to go to hell for laughing at what you were going <laughs> to laugh at when you were, like, 10, right? Yeah, yeah. That, that is true comedy. Uh-huh. That honest reaction from the depth of your soul because something is so evil it's funny. That's comedy. Like, that's what I love. Like, real comedy done right is that. And I don't think that any comedy is real unless it really does punch you. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. That's just how I've always been. Like, <laughs> I really feel like it should be something like that. It, how often do you get to go out on the road now that we're on the other side of COVID? You're, and I I failed to say this at the beginning. I'm glad you mentioned Steven Crowder, yeah. which is where people can catch you um, doing your thing over there. Um how often do you get to go out on the road and, and do shows now? Um, I never stopped. That pissed people off. But oh, I was like, you. I'll be in Arkansas, and I'm taking a plane. And I got upgraded to first class because it's me and three other people that on That is it. awesome. <laughs> yes. I love you for that alone. Yeah, oh my I goodness. just... And what's strange is I'm a germaphobe. My mom was a bipolar nurse. Like, I... Grew up, I'm terrified of germs, Mm -hmm. but there was nothing logical about anything that was happening. I'm going, you want me to put a mask on and go use a public bathroom and then wear it all day? Like, that doesn't make any sense. So I would have like four masks at the airport for when I would use a public bathroom, then take that one off and put a new one on because I'm germaphobic. Uh And then I would go on the plane and it's like, you know, there's nobody on the plane. This is the best. It can't be cleaner than nobody on this plane. Uh So I would go back and forth to LaGuardia every week. Like, to do my other show, because I was on a, uh, the Anthony Cumia show at the time. Uh-huh. So I would do that every week, that radio show, and then I would either go back to Detroit, where I was living at the time with my family, or I would fly to a gig if they were still open. That's what I was going to ask you. Were, were, did you find enough places that were open? That yeah, I mean, to? I was working probably at least twice a month, and then there was probably a chunk in 2020 where there was a month and a half that went by, and it was the longest I'd ever taken off of stand-up, where you just could not work anywhere. Yeah. Yeah, how were the crowds during this time? They were fine. They were small, mm-hmm. but I mean, forty people who wanted to get out of their house and laugh were great because they appreciated what they couldn't have. You know, right. I think there was a point where crowds were getting almost too complacent, mm-hmm. a little too comfortable, and not really giving the performers the benefit of the doubt. Mm-hmm. You know, and paying God knows how much money for like any kind of tickets. It could be Broadway. It could be whatever. Like I paid seven hundred dollars to see Bruce Springsteen on Broadway. And it was just because I wanted the experience of like, yeah. all right, I, I'd like to see him live and it's a 500 seat theater and they're going for three grand. So if I can get uh, two tickets for 700 waiting outside yeah. at the last minute, I'll do it. Yeah. And I did. Yeah. But I mean, there was that element of like, they got too greedy 
too, the ticket companies, and I've noticed that's gone down. There's benefits to all of it, I mm-hmm. think, you oh, know? And, I mean, this sounds morbid, but, well, it may have more to do with the fact that I was flying from Houston, Texas, to Omaha, Nebraska, in the dead of winter. It was January 2002, and I think I just, for the fun of it, I put on Priceline, eh, I'll give them 19 bucks. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it was under 40 bucks round trip. But anyhow, so yeah. there are, I mean, there are benefits. When yeah, something it's like, like September this 12th, 01, you're like, uh, $4? Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. You've got to work this in somewhere. Okay, uh, you got to play the system. It's called lemonade. You make lemonade. Thank you. Thank you. You've been a luggage salesman. I have been. So I have to ask you, I've never interacted with someone that was trying to sell me luggage I just yeah. went to a store, bought it off the shelf. Where where were you working? Downtown Detroit. Okay. And right now it's been sort of um, gentrified. Uh, uh-huh. So the area's nice. Uh-huh. At the time it was not. Right. So I worked in a very high-end luggage store that exclusively sold luggage, wallets, briefcases, mainly to corrupt pastors uh, in the middle of uh, Detroit <laughs> and uh, homeless people that ran in and would just steal them. Uh, oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Like, we had to close at 530 for the insurance just because they, you'd get killed. Yeah. So I, and usually I was just hung over. <laughs> like, it was really bad. Um, but, yeah, I would sell all these different suitcases, <laughs> luggage. Like, and I would go out back and smoke cigarettes. And basically I would do it until I would see, like, and I'm not kidding, like, a pack of pit bulls, like, just walking down the street. <laughs> and I'd be like, oh, I got to go back in. But all these rich people would come from the suburbs to get like Toomey and Hartman and all these high-end luggage brands wow. and come to us because we guaranteed stuff. So they would come into the store because it it's been around since the 19, you know, whatever, the year this dad opened it, probably like the 50s or 40s mm-hmm. or whatever. So they always supported it. But yeah, I was a luggage salesman and I made like no money. It was incredible. It was like $7 an hour. So wait, someone comes in there and says... All right, what's the difference between this suitcase and that? I mean, yeah, I, I just I have to know. Wow, okay. And I can still tell you. Oh, so what? Okay, so I have notorious bad luck with luggage. Yeah, you know, like the corner, like the wheels will roll, uh, break off on the second trip. The corners will rub off in a you know a year. Yeah. What brand do I need that I don't want to spend a lot of money though, Dave? See, that's the tough part. You want to go to Marshalls. <laughs> and you want to look for Hartman. You're, you're okay. never going to find Toomey because Toomey's, but Toomey's now way overpriced and made in China. But uh, you want to look for Hartman, uh, and you want it more like the woolly stuff that's like easily collapsible okay. because they can toss it around and it's not going to get damaged. Okay, that's probably what you're going to want to go with. That's what I have. Uh-huh. The zippers will still rip off of it because everything is crap now. Mm-hmm. That's the true problem: is everything is made terribly now. So, but if you're looking for something, because I have the same deal with luggage. I have like four different bags. Mm-hmm. But yeah, honestly, like the softer. Because you travel a ton. So you nonstop. I mean, so that, that actually is a great background for you to have. Yeah, I totally get luggage and I will help people out with when they I need it. I love that. I love that. <laughs> and the four wheel rolling motion is the best. Yeah. Yeah. And if you want to get it on a plane, go under 21 inches and make sure you pack it tight and they'll never stop you. I love it. I love it. And I, I fly, I, I say exclusively, but. Sometimes I find myself having to take a different airline, but I try to fly Southwest all the time. Yeah. I love being able to take stuff. What? My kids don't understand the era where, no, you don't understand. Everyone used to let you take two suitcases in two bags. Yeah. Well, one day they were just like, well, you 
have to pay to take stuff with you. It's like, you know, I'm going on a trip, right? Like, was I supposed to just go without anything? It's like, yeah, well, we didn't know. It's got to be $35 a bag to bring anything with you. We didn't know. We didn't know. We thought you were going to just buy clothes when you were there and then donate them to a homeless dude on the way to the airport. Yeah, we're sorry. We just have to charge you $35 a bag. That's so and uh, it's, <laughs> it's, it's the worst. I hate it. I hate and then it. it's more for the second bag now. That's yeah. why you have to get a card with any of the airlines. It's like, well, now i got to get a credit card so I don't have to pay for luggage. Uh, and that's why, yeah, it's the worst. Or no, just, I hate them. Or just fly Southwest. <laughs> yeah, Southwest is good about it. Yeah. I do Delta just because uh-huh. they go to so many places. Yeah. But I do also do Southwest. But yeah, it's uh, dude. It's the I, I hate everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I guess like every company just screws you in every they way. They find a way. All of them, some variation of how to screw you over. They all have. Well, that. and people have gotten so fat. Like I was sitting on a plane, <laughs> and I'm fat. I get it. I'm one of the problem. Oh, come but on. it's. <laughs> I'm looking. I'm checking out your gut. Shut up. But you. <laughs> but like you're sitting on a plane, and I remember a lady came. Like the flight attendant walks up and goes, um, "Ma'am, you have to get off the plane. This is on Southwest." She goes, uh, "There's sort of a wait limit, and you were one of the last people on." And it's like you could have just said anything, but you chose to say to this woman, "There's oh, a wait," and she wasn't even that big, no, at all. And I felt so bad for her because I'm oh. like, she's like, "Well, this is embarrassing." I'm like, "Well, it's just because you were one of the last people on, and she, you were, she was like a layover that wasn't supposed to get on that plane, uh-huh. like or whatever you call it, a standby." Oh, come but I felt on. so bad. No. I wanted to. I wanted to be like, I'll just stay. I mean, I, I didn't, obviously, because I don't want to. <laughs> yeah. but, but I thought about it for a second. Hey, look, I, I thought about being really nice. <laughs> yeah, but then I was nah. like, well, I'm not the standby. But, yeah, sorry about the complex you're going to have for the next six years. Right. Because this, I, you could have just said, we made a mistake. We yes. can't have you on this plane. And she's like, we have a weight limit. And I was like, oh, no. What, <laughs> what did this lady look like? The lady breaking her the news. She was about the same size. Okay. It was just such an awful thing to say. All right. Well, I mentioned that uh, my kids can't understand that, you know, you used to could just take luggage on a flight. A novel concept, I know. Another thing that kids can't fully grasp is another job that you did, and that was a Photoshop uh, developer, right? Or clerk, right? Did you develop Mm -hmm. the actual photos there? No, no. no. I worked the counter and stole money for drugs when people walked away. (laughs) Okay, I got you. So, uh, I mean, that I mean that that's that's gone. I mean that. that yeah, it was me and two other stoners who worked at a photo. It was called Speedy Photo. Okay. In uh, Gross Point, Michigan. Uh huh. And I remember when digital started to come out, and we're like, "Do you think that it's going to be a problem?" And they're like, "No, are you kidding? People <laughs> always want prints of film." And I'm like, I think they, I think they're starting to not. And this was like 2000. Uh huh. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was getting to the point where I was like, there's no way this is gonna make it, and it didn't. Mm-mm. No, I mean it's uh, there. I had to go to a camera store, in fact, recently, and I had to look far and wide. I ended up having to drive down into Dallas to find. Yeah, it's like the Asian dude from Gremlins who's just like, <laughs> what, what, who are you? Yeah, right. It's basically. <laughs> uh, so I mean, it's. Uh, I mean, it's just amazing how things change in relatively short amounts of time, too. Oh, yeah. it's You can't find any of that stuff. And if you go to one of those places, it's all antique. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They had old cameras yeah. and stuff. And yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just trying to think of this place. I mean, it was like walking into a time machine, basically. Yeah. Childhood. 
Well, if you want a good job done, you have to find those places because if you just go to your regular like digital printout place, it all looks terrible when yeah. you print it out. Yep. Uh, okay, so anything memorable happened to you when you were a stock boy? Anything that stands out? You're like, oh, I got to tell you about this. Oh, when I was a stock boy? Yeah. We were, it was for a pharmacy. And this oh, was during the heyday oh, of... <laughs> oh, no, I'm seeing where this is going. I'm in recovery, I should tell you them that. Uh, yeah, my friend and I would... Uh, we had to take out the trash in the pharmacy. Okay. And this was long before it was regulated. Okay. This is when you were signing with an Oxycontin pen when you went to the doctor. This is when girls came in and were pushing the drugs. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? This Here's is very different. samples to try yeah. if you'd like. Just enjoy. It's yeah. just some opioids. Yeah, have fun. <laughs> Do what you do. So we would go back and we would take like Vicodin, Percocet, morphine patches, Oxy, all that. But just enough to where the weight wouldn't really be off. And like we just fill like a cellophane okay. with it, go oh, no. go sell some for like five bucks each, oh, and then you no. know keep some for ourselves. So yeah, we would we had quite a little racket going. Uh-huh. But one day I got fired because there were these delicious. Um, it was a graham cracker shaped like a peanut, okay. and it was filled with peanut butter, and it was made by uh, planters. Oh wait, wait a minute. They were amazing. Oh yeah, PB yeah. Crisp is what they were yes, called. Yes, yes. Yes. I was addicted to those. Yeah, they were problems. amazing. The I fact, don't even know how I broke that habit. The fact that they discontinued them is just that wrong. Must be what yeah, happened. that's why. Because yeah. one day I went in and I'm like, they're, they're gone? Well, I would take a snack break and just eat the PB crisps without really asking. Or so pay, one or day, yeah, One day I called in the office and I'm like, oh, well, I guess we're going down for robbing the pharmacy all these times. Not to mention, like, anytime it was two for one cigarettes, we would just take the extra pack and then just sell you the one pack. Like if we were working the cash register, you know, oh, dude. Like we had a lot of schemes going and I'm not saying I was a good person, Yeah, no, <laughs> I, no. but I was also a, I was a junkie kid and had some issues. And, uh, so yeah, I would get, uh, free cigarettes and some free pills and, um, <laughs> he calls me into his <laughs> office oh, no. and I got fired for stealing so many PB crisps. <laughs> that's what, that that's what he noticed. Awesome. Like it wasn't anything else. It was like, you have to pay for these. And I was like, oh, well, they were downstairs in a box, though. And he's like, yeah, those are for you to stock, not for you to just sit there and eat every time you take a break. <laughs> and I was like, oh. Well, so I, I have I'm, a theory. Sorry, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, we, go ahead. <laughs> so here's my theory on PB Crisp while they were discontinued. They're like, man, we're just not selling any. Yeah, it's like, you know? <laughs> Especially in Michigan. Yeah, they don't. I don't get it. They're <laughs> Specifically, not Gross Point. What is <laughs> yeah. happening? We send them there and they just rot on the shelf because we've yeah. never had a barcode scanned. <laughs> uh, I used to, and that was a stock boy too at a deli. Okay. And that's where I would just, I would... Like, take a six-pack and crack it open. Oh, no. And I would drink the beer. Then I would go and fill it up with water and then close the cap as tight as I could and then put it back in the six-pack and leave it. Okay, hold on. <laughs> Tell me someone didn't come back and be like, this is water. Yeah, they have. They uh, did. Oh, yeah. Did, did that get you kicked out of there? Or? I was like, I have no idea. Because there were other stock boys. I was like, uh, my word. I don't know who did this. That is terrible, y'all. It's a shame. <laughs> um, okay, so... Life as a janitor, that couldn't have been... Uh... It's the best job ever. Really? It was, at the, it was at the War Memorial in Gross Point, and it was this place on the water where you set up weddings. So it was me and two of my best friends from high school, and what we did was we would set up weddings and break them down. So we had all this time in between, which was uh, us sitting in a carriage house smoking weed 
and then we found the theater in the basement. So we would pull down the theater screen and watch full movies on the theater while just getting high. <laughs> and then we learned, we figured out where all the liquor was hidden for the weddings. Uh-huh. So if you opened up one of the screens on the top floor and then kind of shimmied uh, alongside of the building, you could push the screen out in the next room and then just start handing bottles of liquor back. So, like, <laughs> we would just be wait, And the only time we'd ever be called is if they needed a table or something. So they would be, like, over the walkie-talkie, like, hey, we need this. And whoever was the least messed up <laughs> would just, like, you know, throw, like, a tic-tac in and be like, all right, we'll be right there. And then just come up and have, like, you know, a four-top table. That is awesome. And, I mean, nobody, and we got free food. Nobody ever complained. Uh-huh. I mean, it's not like we screwed anything up. We just set stuff up and broke it down. And had a you know an entire wedding length of time in between to just hang out. So who had paid for the alcohol though? Oh, I think they did, but it was all a nonprofit company. Like everybody there ended up getting fired and stuff because like they ended up owing owning like some mansions, like like oh like three of them that they were just living in, and it ended up being kind of a scheme. Like now it's totally legit. But at the time, it was already, like, a little shady. Uh-huh. So, like, they were already shady. So we were just shady on top of the shade they were throwing. Wow. Okay. So yeah. then it, it makes it, uh, it's fine then. It's yeah. fine. It's totally fine. The occasional outdoor concert where you'd meet, like, a local, you know, musician uh-huh. who would be, like, the biggest dick. Which I always loved. Don't you hate that? It's when... like, dude, you, pay, you play pan flute on AM radio, <laughs> and you're sitting here complaining about why. It's like, I need three lemons in my water. It's like, yeah, oh. yeah, I'll be right back with that. <laughs> There'll be something else in your water. Oh, too. every time. Enjoy. So let me ask you about, because, you know, the question on the email is, what are some other jobs you've held? And you listed the ones we've gone through. And here's an interesting one that stood out. Uh, I was a drug dealer. Yes. Now. Your audience knows this about you. Yes. This isn't a story. is isn't going to be new news for them. Mm-hmm. I would just be nervous, not so much that I was illegally selling drugs. It would be that I don't, as the middleman, I would assume, I'm assuming I'm selling yeah. you something that's not going to be bad and cause problems later. The only, at the time, at least in the circles that I ran, when you were selling cocaine, you were usually selling it because you were buying it, and then you were doing selling enough to where you were doing it for free. Okay. So that wasn't really it. Or when I was buying, like, let's say we had bought a pound of weed, I'm selling out the ounces or gramming it up so then I can have several ounces for free uh-huh. or, like, an extra 300 bucks so I didn't have to work because that was, like, even when I was in college. So you know the quality of the product that, that yeah, you're selling. Yeah, it wasn't it. anything. Okay. Ba- and all my friends kind of did it, so it wasn't, like, any huge amount of weight that could get anybody in serious trouble. Okay. But I was already arrested so many times that, you know, it, it's kind of shocking that I wasn't in prison because I was arrested 13 times over the course of, like, uh, 10, well, 11, 12 times over the course of, like, five years. <laughs> and then years later, I was arrested once. And uh, So how much time have you served behind bars? Um, I haven't served much behind like actual prison bars or anything. Okay. Just uh, little little stints in jail oh, wow, okay. and uh, obviously rehabs, mental institutions, and then yeah, like uh, detoxes, stuff like that. Because everything that I've ever done has been drug and alcohol related. So ultimately, what motivated you to get clean? 
getting a DUI at 27 when I was finally an adult mm. and them pulling out my uh, criminal record because they pulled out they, they're you're supposed to be erased because I was under 21 okay or under 18 for most of them but for some reason this uh, like little girl died by a drunk driver it was like Abby's law or something so they could look at my priors oh my so they threw the book at me which I get and they threw I mean it cost me $20,000 like what happened that night to give you an idea I ended up in jail for a DUI this was when I was doing comedy, things in my life had gotten better. I was doing well. I was controlling my drinking. I was recently married. I was, I thought I was better, I should say. Mm-hmm. Uh, next thing I know, I'm in a jail and there's a guy who had beaten his wife and he's like this weird looking guy and he's crying and like, uh, and I'm just still drunk. So I'm like, shut up. Uh-oh. And this guy could kill me. Right. And he's like, but do you think she still loves me? I'm like, no, you beat her. Why would she like you? Shut oh. up. Go to bed. He's like, but Dave, will you wake up and talk to me? I'm like, no, go to bed. Go punch yourself like you do your wife. And then he's like, please wake up. And I'm like, I'm going to kill you. I'm seriously going to get up and murder you if you do not shut up. So then (laughs) the police come over. Oh, no. And this lady opens up the door and is like, you need to come with us. You threatened to kill him. And I was like, awesome. So I come out. And uh, as we're walking, she goes, we have to put you in solitary because you're threatening to kill people. And I go, okay. And she goes, we're not really mad, though. (laughs) (laughs) Did you say maybe I can sleep in there? Yeah, yeah. I wasn't (laughs) too mad about it. And she wasn't pissed either because she got why I was doing it. But they took my belt and my shoelaces. I had been there before. And now I'm in this, like, glass box just sleeping by myself. No magazines, no anything, no pillow. It's suicide watch. Oh, man. And then I get out. And I'm on a digital thing, and they take a screenshot of me, and I look, and I look like Pablo Escobar. Mm. Like, I looked more like uh, El Chapo, actually. Uh-huh. And I just looked bloated, and my eyes were dead, and I was very red-faced, and, like, I gained all this weight, and I realized, like, how bad I looked. And then I'm saying, like, not guilty, and it ended up costing me over $20,000. I had a breathalyzer put in my car for over a year. I had to wear an ankle monitor on my ankle while having a breathalyzer in my car that tested my blood alcohol level. So I would have to go around the country and plug it into walls while I was doing stand-up. And then I was in clubs doing comedy trying to avoid any alcohol touching me. Because if it did, it would set off my monitor. And the day, it's like three days before, I was supposed to get the breathalyzer out of my car and I was sober. I used mouthwash because I had finally got the tether off. I've heard of this. Yeah, so I go down. I go downstairs at this con- comedy condo, and this other dude, uh, Tommy Johnigan, who's like a producer for Worldwide Pants now, and uh-huh. he's he's like thirty Letterman's. He's great. I call him because well, I go down and I blow, and it's like point four, like legally dead. And I was like, oh, no, like I'm screwed because if this counts down, not only am I stuck here in Omaha, I'm I'm going to prison now even though I've been good this whole time. So I call him and I'm like, dude, there's like 10 minutes on this thing. Like if, can you just come? And he's like, I drank last night. I'm like, I I, I don't know what to do. I'm trying to rinse my mouth out. And if I do it again, I know it's going to go off. So he runs. And I mean, it was like the last scene of a movie where the team wins. 
like it was like five, four, three, two, and on one, I'm not kidding. He blows into the thing. It hits all zeros, and my car starts. Wow. I was like, oh, thank God, because I would have gone to prison. Oh, no. So it was like that day, and then after that, I didn't want to – it stopped. Nothing was fun about it anymore. Like I realized I had started doing drugs because my dad was diagnosed with brain cancer. We were a very tight family, and he was diagnosed by uh, – he was, uh, it was Agent Orange in Vietnam. Mm. And his insurance company said it's a pre existing condition, possibly since birth. And the VA said, yeah, that too. So they gave him nothing. Oh. So my parents were going basically from, my dad had just become like pretty wealthy actually from hard work and was now spending like the few million dollars that he made to the point that he was almost poor which actually led to my mom's suicide, losing him, you know? So it was like, we, we were this like perfect family. My dad ran little league. We had our issues. My mom had her issues, but we were a normal American middle-class family until, and now they've proven that soft cell sarcomas were a result of agent orange. The VA still doesn't do anything for us because we were 18 when he died, even though he suffered for five years, wasn't able to be there as a father wasn't able to be around, had to go to different places in the country to get the surgeries done, had a halo drilled into his head for half of it. Like, so I I was dealing with the abandonment of a teenager because you don't have the perspective you should right. of what's going on with you. You just know that you miss your family and that you feel isolated. So it was like, it was this certain things that were happening to me. Sure. And then I had a family. I can't imagine uh, going through both of these experiences yeah and then i well i had a family friend who was staying with me and she uh she had been addicted to drugs and was stealing them from work she was a nurse and we didn't know that so she got caught during that and ended up going home and killing herself with those and then during that uh three of my friends were uh killed in a two very 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 close friends were killed in a brutal car accident so I had all this stuff that kept hitting me, and sure. I and not to make that about me is way worse for the families and stuff. Sure. But when I drive a kid to school every day that I see every day, I see dead against a tree, it messes with you. Mm-hmm. So I had all these things that drove me into a darker and darker and darker place, and that kept leading to arrest. But the truth is, I didn't want to be alive anymore. I didn't get life. I didn't get the point. I wasn't happy. I've been depressed since I was ten. I don't know why. So it's like I was just constantly drinking. And that led to everything else. So I would do cocaine so I could be up to get drunk. But then I would get drunk so I don't have to feel anything. And I would get blackout drunk. I wasn't, I didn't drink to taste it or to get a buzz or to have fun. I drank to be dead. That's all I wanted. Mm. And I operated that way until I was 27. From the time I was 14. Okay. So for 13 years, I operated that way and as my mom's depression got worse as my dad died and she waited years but when i was a little older she killed herself as a result of it because she just couldn't live without my father and she was a nurse bipolar everything you know and she did pills just like my family friend did she didn't take them ever recreationally she just knew how to get them because she's very intelligent again nurse at the hospital i was born in she killed herself and just left a note that said i'm going to meet your father And it was like, and still the VA, the only reason I even go at the VA is because it's like, you owe us something. Mm -hmm. I don't even care if it's monetary. It's like, how about just an apology or a thank you 
because you stole everything from me. Not only that, but the result of a man serving his country was nothing. He was drafted right, like right out of college. Like he seriously got home and it's like, yeah, with my luck, my draft. Oh, there it is. So I've, I had to live with that. So for me, I was always, it was confusing because we had so much. And then eventually we moved on, you know, to where this was happening. And then, yeah, I mean, I turned to drugs. I turned to the street. I turned to, and I realized it didn't help. I gave my parents hell. You know, I totaled my dad's car the day I got my driver's license. That was pretty cool. I was driving, and I decided to do a high-speed chase with... I was, like, giving lawn jobs, which I know sounds sexual, but it's just when you pull up on somebody's lawn and you just start spinning your tires. Right. You see those on golf courses. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was doing it with a Regal, though. <laughs> a uh-huh. Buick Regal. Oh, no. And then I got on a high-speed chase with the dude, and I was driving down the street, and I didn't see that it took this hard left turn... So my, the car popped up in the air and hit a tree. Now, I had already gone down to the ghetto and paid a homeless dude to go into this place on 8 Mile and buy his beer. Oh, no. So I didn't know that in the trunk, my dad never drank, so I would have never even looked. We did have a family reunion that weekend, though. So there was about eight cases of beer, potato chips, dip, everything. So when I hit the tree, the trunk exploded and like a Super Bowl party just rolled out with this river of beer and chips just leading up to his car. And I was knocked unconscious by the airbag. My three friends weren't. So they all ran. Oh boy. And then I woke up to the police just sitting there at the end of a river of beer. Just. Oh, and so it began. Yeah. And my dad was a very tough dude and he would, he never really put hands on me. But that day he did. Because I remember I, he goes, are you all right? I said, yeah. Then he hit me. And somebody goes, did the airbag break your nose? And I was like, yeah, we'll go with that. Oh, no. My goodness, man. So you now have a son of your own. Yes. And he's obviously very important to you. you very much. You list him as uh, the individual who's had the biggest impact on your life. Um, how so? Tell us. I mean, I, I could answer this just as a dad as well. But, I mean, obviously it changes you. It gives you a reason to live and someone to live for because you realize there's one thing about higher power in sobriety because you find God and you realize you're not the center of the universe and there's so much more that's important than you. Like, I think it's important for somebody to be humbled, but there's nothing more humbling to me, I think, than having children because you realize you're not that important, but if you play it right, you're their world. Mm. And if you just do the best job you can, like you realize that that's you realize in a moment that's all that matters. Like all that matters is your life with these people in the end. So everything else you've ever been shooting for, even if it's like money, power, whatever you want with your life, I that wasn't mine necessarily. But like fame, comedy, whatever it is for me, none of that matters. I would rather trade a forty thousand dollar gig for a weekend with my son. Like we went to WrestleMania. You couldn't pay me any amount of money to take that weekend away, Mm -hmm. you know? So it, it realized it gave me value in what it meant. And it also gave me perspective of how my dad saw me because I never got to know that because he died before we could really bond as adults or even come close to it. Yeah. So 
the way that it it matters is it, it kind of brought my life full circle and knowing how my dad viewed me and it, it gave me it gave me a reason to live when I couldn't find one it's well said um and you also list sobriety as being very important to you so you stopped drinking at 27 then um I stopped drinking at 27 but I relapsed a couple times and it's been 11 years since I've had a drink okay so um it's yeah okay. I've been 11 years good for you man how old are you now I'm 39 okay all right kudos kudos I didn't start drinking really until I was 35 so what 10 years now Ugh, I should have never started yeah, <laughs> did, you, did you quit? No. Oh yeah. Well, there's nothing wrong. I mean, that's <laughs> when I hang out with people that it's always weird when they're like, "Do you mind if I drink?" Like my best friend from childhood owns a bar in Detroit, uh-huh. so I go up there and I see my old friends. I see all kinds of people. Like I have all my friends from when I was young, because they weren't drinking buddies or anything. They were my friends. Then we all got into stuff, and mm-hmm. some of my friends honestly could control it the whole time. Yeah, they were very well. They they achieved everything. They drank. They went to college. They did fine. Then there was me, who uh-huh. was like. The guy you want around to prove that your drinking isn't so severe. Right. There you, you know? go. See? And I was fun. I mean, that's the thing is every night wasn't bad. We had really good times. And, yeah. you know, but, you know, it, it ended up getting very bad for me. Yeah. But I, I just go there now and it's like I just get, a, you know, an iced tea, hang out with people. And <laughs> it never bothers Are me to see. Are you the forced, uh, is, is the designated driver status forced on you? Um, thank God there's Uber now. Okay, yeah, okay, good yeah, point. for a minute, yeah, it was, a lot. I bet. Where it's like, I'm just driving home drunk people who want to sing 80s music, <laughs> and I just want to, like, pull over and just leave them at a white castle in the middle of the ghetto. It's <laughs> <laughs> the worst. See, I, um, I don't get hangovers. And How? I'm just glad that I didn't discover that quote, superpower when I was younger. Or oh, who knows? Good for you. Because <laughs> right? when I was young, I didn't get hangovers, but I think it's just because your liver is so, like, yeah. and don't take my advice on right. this if you're no, young. No, no. But for me, when your liver's so young, uh-huh. you can, die, you know, you can process stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm like 15. I remember the first time I got drunk, my friend legally died. He did live at the end of the story, so... Mm. But my mom came downstairs. My dad had just been diagnosed. And we were we found my dad's stash of liquor. Again, he didn't drink. He was an Irishman. But he never drank because his dad abandoned him as a, his father was a drunk. So one day, we found his stash of liquor. He had a fifth. And it was something that he won in the golf tournament, in a golf tournament in the 70s. This was 1996. Oh, no. So we polished off the fifth. Well, it, trying to watch the movie Spy Hard with Leslie Nielsen. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. So my mom comes down, and my friend Brian and I awake to my mom screaming and, like, trying to wake up my friend Ray on this beanbag chair, whose mom's, like, a judge in the city, just, like, screaming to, like, wake him up, wake him up, and he's, like, blue. Wow. So they call 911. I'm so hammered, I go upstairs, and uh, right when I round the corner... I see a stretcher, and I assume it's my bed, so I just curl up on the stretcher, and then they come up carrying Ray, and they're like, get up, and I'm just not even responding either, so they just tipped me off the stretcher, put him on it, and left. Then a police officer comes upstairs, a detective, and he he was good. He walked upstairs. He's like, now I need to know what Ray's been doing, 
and we did find this bottle downstairs, so I need to know if this is what happened. And he pulls out a bottle of non-toxic Elmer's wood glue. So my friend Brian and I were too drunk. Oh, no. We're two drunk kids now laughing in a man's face. And Brian's like, way to go, Columbo. You didn't know, notice the empty fifth? I'm like, he did it again, Kojak. I'm like, you're the <laughs> worst. Like, way to go, MacGyver. We're just naming every detective we could possibly. Just throwing it at him. And the guy's like, whatever. You're lucky. I don't arrest you and your parents. Like, he walks away all mad. So funny. But, yeah, we ended up having to have a meeting the next day, like, with his parents and, like, every day to talk about, like, what we had done and everything. And, yeah, that was the first time I drank was, yeah, he, like, nothing. Just to give an idea of, like, the years to come. That was just, like, this crazy moment. So. Mm. So instead of, instead of scaring you sober right then, it was just the beginning. Oh, it was so <laughs> it was crazy. So, you are married. Your wife is Tammy. Yes. Where'd you guys meet? Second City. Oh, cool. Yeah. So how long have you been married? Um, <laughs> uh, she would do the same answer. <laughs> Fourteen years. Fourteen years. Yeah. Okay. So then, quick math here by me. You were still drinking then. Yes. Was there ever a moment where it was either her or the bottle? It became that, but I was very, because I had found comedy, mm-hmm. I, I, that was so important to me. But I've also said, like, you know, I've said that and then had club owners be like, do you remember some of your late shows? Like, it's not like I ever walked people, but I was drunk and saying whatever I wanted to audience members. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, towards the end, it got to the point where it it was really, she couldn't take it anymore. Mm -hmm. And it was, it started where we were, you know, like, her waking me up and there's just damage to my car and it's like clear I hit a parking barrel, mm. you know, and it's like, where were you? What, what was this? I was like, oh, a, a semi truck tried to cut me off and I hit a parking barrel when I didn't even remember what happened, wow. you know, and I would have like a, a, just enough of a flashback to realize that I, when I was getting on the freeway, I just stopped paying attention and just hit a parking barrel. So it was little stuff like that would build up like the, the harder my drinking got. Did you, and and I'm not being flippant. No. Perhaps you forgot, but did you ever come close to dying yourself? Yeah. How many times, I guess I should say, did you do you think you nearly avoided dying? Um I was beaten pretty severely by police in my backyard. And when they arrested me, I got to the hospital and my blood alcohol level was so far above lethal. When they pumped my stomach, like they, it basically became an emergency. Like I was no longer there for the beating I took. I was there because of the amount of alcohol that was in my system. Mm. But the crazy part is, is I remember every bit of that. It could have been the beating waking me up, but it, it was also, you know, the amount of alcohol that was in my system. But there's, yeah, many, many times where. I remember one night, I don't remember what happened. I remember we were all on drugs and drinking. And the last thing I remember is my friend Joe beating up a vacuum cleaner at a hotel. And I woke up on my driveway, my parents' driveway. uh, And, like, the neighbors weren't surprised or anything. I had no idea how I got there. There's vomit everywhere. Um, There are so many times that I know I poisoned myself Mm. because even... 
as I got older, like 17, 18, that's when I started realizing that I was messing with myself. When I was first going to rehab, they were letting me know, like, your liver is starting, you're dealing with cirrhosis now. Oh, boy. Which can be reversed, thankfully. Like, not because it wasn't fully there, Uh but it can be reversed as long as you take better care of yourself. Your liver is an organ that can heal as long as it's not fully on cirrhotic. But I had a pretty damaged liver. Yeah, (laughs) I had a pretty damaged liver for a kid. Damaged stomach, ulcers, all that stuff. And it was just because, honestly, my dad, like, because he was sick, he had insurers that were really just hospital food at the time in a can. So I would drink, like, two of those a day so I could just party all day. And those would be my meals, and then the rest of it was just booze. Mm. How's your health now? It's better. Mm-hmm. It's I mean, I've gone and got physicals. They're like, you got to drop like 10 pounds or whatever. But my livers are fine. My enzymes are fine. Good job. Uh, yeah. Nice job, man. Yeah. So, yeah, as far as uh, the booze and like the the organ damage I've done, it's better. <laughs> I, the problem is, is like you always have something. So for me, it's... You know, I'll have cake or ice cream, whatever it is that I just want to. There's always this dopamine release in my brain that I I know that I have to live with. But if I have to let the beast out every now and then at, like, birthday cake, it's fine. Because I'd rather be like, yeah, I drank a milkshake than, well, I drank 16 beers and half a (laughs) pint of vodka and drove into a church on a Sunday. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I gotcha. Yeah, it's just better to be, uh, it's just (laughs) better. Yeah. Yeah. You know. You, yeah. You don't wake up from a milkshake and be like, "I'm sorry that I hurt everyone's feelings." <laughs> I had to have the whipped cream. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. The... <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So you mentioned uh, you know you have your wife Tammy, your son Wyatt. Yes. Um, I, obviously, I, having a family has had a great impact on you. Yes. Um, and that's great. Um, I hate this question that I'm about to get to here. But talk about your pets, you know, you've got uh, yeah. a couple of dogs and yes. you recently lost a dog, Madison. Yes. I just hate that. I mean, from the second we get our pets and start bonding with them, we have in the back of our mind that just slowly works itself to the forefront of, oh, my gosh, one of these days uh, I'm going to lose this pet. And it sucks. It was the first time I'd ever been part of putting down a dog was my first Rottweiler, Natasha. And this was my dog, Madison. And, but this dog was like my dog. That was my wife's when I met her. But Natasha had was only like a puppy. So she was really everything to me too. But Madison, for some reason, uh, just linked to me. Mm-hmm. So if I came home, she was my shadow. No matter what, she was by my side. She was very, like, everything was me and her. Like, mm-hmm. she was everything to me. I, I don't know how else to explain it because I, when I was young, I didn't have that. I felt very lonely and isolated when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And I finally had something that I just loved so much and so unconditionally yeah. and loved me for the same way. And it was amazing because we never spoke a word. You yeah, know, right. it's like it's a dog, <laughs> you know, but it's like we just knew each other. It was It was the most one of the most wonderful relationships I've ever had. And yeah, when I had to take her to put her down, I just knew how much pain she was in. And when she was coughing so hard the night before, and you try to do everything, but you know, you're also getting, there's a griff to like, we can do the chemo, but it's like, it's just cause we're being selfish and it's not real and it's going to work. It's not really going to work. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, there's that, and then you can give it painkillers, but let's be honest, dogs have a great pain threshold. So you know they're in serious pain. They're just not acting it out. Right. You I know? Just, I mean, I mean, that's the one thing that I would love to have that superpower is to, when your kids are so young, they can't talk and communicate. Yeah. And same with animals. Yes. I wish you could just, just talk to me. Please tell me where, where's the pain. Yeah, that's exactly it. And that's, those are the two, well, that's the hardest thing in the world. Like when my son could first communicate, there was so, so, so much, it was so relieved because for years yeah. when you can't figure it yeah. out, right. like I remember when I found out he had like the acid reflux, like that, uh, uh, yeah. And he's fine now. I mean, it all worked, but yeah. I remember I took him to the children's hospital and they put him up in one of those, uh, this like, I don't know if you call it a gurney, but they just put him on this machine and they're going to spin him around. He's like, one, dude. And they're like, all right, we need you to leave the room. And I was like, I'm not leaving the room. He's oh, in here. Right. right. And they go, well, you have to. The radiation's stronger on you. I go, great. Give me a vest. And they go, that, well, that might not do it. I go, give me a vest. And they go, all right. So they can't. I mean, they got it. And they went and got me a vest. And they go, yeah. but it's at your own risk. And I'm like, I don't care. Like, right. give me a vest. So I put it on and, you know, I was with him the whole time because they're spinning a baby around like it's and he doesn't know what's going on. Right. You know, and fortunately, they were able they were very good as in Detroit, Detroit Children's Hospital. They were amazing. Nicest people. They figured it out right away. Put him on this Prilosec. And honestly, six months later, it disappeared. Mm. And I was I was so relieved because it was burning him like you could smell it, you know. And it was just one of those weird things that, not even weird, it was one of those extraordinarily common things that happen with babies. Has Wyatt, to this point, ever had to be put under, uh, unconscious, uh, for a procedure or anything like that? Surgery. Okay. In June. Uh, I was at my buddy's mom's funeral, and uh, at the time my wife stopped over at her friend's house. And there's this big playscape in their backyard that's like, you know, 11 feet high and mm -hmm. they say don't jump off of it don't jump off of it so the first thing they do is when they see that the parents aren't looking is run back now his friend landed a lot better than him so his buddy hits the ground he's fine my son hits the ground and tumbles sideways and pretty much breaks his humerus bone in half and it's now like it's it's very close to a nerve, so they don't know what damage is done. Uh. So he's screaming, and I'm doing everything I can to try to figure this out. We're going to the hospital. I'm doing everything. He can't stop crying. It's the worst feeling I've ever had in my life. So and it's even one of those things where, like, they didn't call in child services because they saw how upset we were. It's like, yeah, this isn't an issue with it. Like just, they, these are parents who are very upset. Uh, we laid with him in the hospital all night. Once they gave him the drugs, it was, uh, it pretty much just got funny because he was so relieved and just started talking, you know, and it was just nice to see him. And the next, uh, the next day they, they got him right into surgery. They were great. And like, they brought him out and I was so relieved and dude, they heal like Wolverine, man. Mm -hmm. Like it was supposed to be like six weeks, three and a half weeks later, they took <laughs> off the cast and he was fine. That's so great. I and he's fine now, but it's like, he learned the lesson of like, when we're telling you not to jump off things that are that high, we're not doing it because we hate you. We're doing it because we love you. Right. And he got, I mean, it sucks because it's, it's that lesson. Mm -hmm. My brother learned that lesson when he was a kid, when he shattered his knee, you know, jumping off a really high uh, a part of our garage. Oh. 
and I watched him. So I was like, oh, yeah, I don't want to do that. And he's screaming and crying, and I'm like, oh, lesson learned. Lesson learned. Is that not the most helpless feeling in the world as a parent during those minutes when your child is out? You give anything for it to change. I, I mean, in the moment they are awake, it is like, the weight of the world comes off of you. Finally. You're just praying to like, just rewind time and break my arm. Yeah, just let I'll... me just take my arm, let him go back, just do whatever, take both my arms, just make it so he's not. It can, yeah, because you can't do anything and you don't want to like upset anybody at the hospital either because they're doing the best they can. Mm -hmm. But you want to be like, you, you have a doctor, right? So just do it. Like, but, and you don't want to be a pushy, like, because right. the, there's a way that things work, you know? And, for my son, it was somewhat beneficial because once he was, like, in the cast, we were in a children's hospital. So he's seeing kids that are bald and have cancer and sick, and he's kind of, like, looking, like, and asking me questions. And I'm like, you just have to remember how lucky you are. Mm -hmm. It's like, this is this is very bad, but you're going to heal from this. But I'm like, a lot of, and I, I hate to give him that wake-up call when he was six. Yeah. But I'm like, a lot of these kids won't leave here. You know, and that's just, it, but it was a sad reality I had to tell him because... You might be there, but there's a mom screaming and crying, and he wants to know why. Yeah. And I'm not going to lie to him because he already kind of knows. Because assuming your kid's an idiot is not the way to do it. You know, he kids can feel it. Kids are like a sponge. They know more than you think they do. Mm -hmm. So I was like, well, not everybody gets out of here, you know. And that, that really gave him a wake-up call and just... I wish I, you know, I wish that I knew how not invincible I was. Because the second I became a teenager, I certainly forgot. Because mm. you think that you can do anything and that you're going to live forever. You're never going to be older. Yeah. You're always going to be a teenager and you make the worst mistakes you possibly can. And that's just something that I really want to be there for him for because he may not believe it, but it'd be like, look, dude, I, everything that you think you could do, I've done worse. There's no way. Hmm. Perspective, huh? Yeah. So you have some hobbies here. I got to tell you, I've been playing golf forever. Um, 35 years, 30, almost 35 years. Really? And I'm horrible. Yeah, I suck. Okay, I suck. I've been playing my whole life. Right? So I was going to ask you, what's your handicap, you know? Oh, I don't even... Thank I don't, you. Yeah. Oh, we no. got to go play. Yeah, man. yeah, this yeah, yeah. Like I finally found someone sitting I'm in that chair. the worst. <laughs> like, I, it was a big deal for me, and I've told this story. I'm sorry, y'all. But it took me, uh, what was it, um, over 15 years of playing, often, regularly, before I broke 100. Oh really? I've I think I've broke a hundred twice. <laughs> oh my gosh, we would be okay. We're playing. We're my, playing. Yeah, like I'll <laughs> I'll substitute in leagues every now and then oh. when I'm like back home in Detroit, and my friends are just like, just pick the ball up at points, you know? <laughs> like, oh, like they don't even want you finishing the hole. Yeah, like the, most of them are very encouraging, uh -huh. but my brothers like sometimes though, I will do really well. Like I remember one time I won a, a driver. Because I got closest to the pin. Okay. But it's because I used a driver on a par three, and I just did a half swing. Oh. <laughs> Improvise, man. It worked, yeah. and I, it was it was an, and what sucked it was an inch from the hole, so I won a driver. Had it gone in the hole, I would have won a Hummer. The car, oh. but yeah, like I seriously would have won. It was a Hummer H three. Wow. Oh, were you waiting for the wind? Yeah, Come like on. I was like, but I did get a driver. I got like a Callaway out of it. 
but yeah, it was it it was that close, and Man. it was like those little things that. Yeah. And my brother's like, this would have been hilarious because they would have to give you a golden driver for a par three. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I'm telling you, man, it's you get one good shot at 18 holes. That's what keeps you coming. That's back. why I play like every, at keeps least once or twice a game. I'll do a shot where I'm like, oh wow, that was me. Yeah. Like even when I go with my friends, right? I'll, I'll have one drive where for some reason. I can't drive all day. Then all of a sudden, it's 300 yards and straight. And I'm like, where did that come right. from? Right. I can knock the snot out of <laughs> right. the ball, but it's two fairways over. All right. I'm sorry. Yeah. All of a sudden, it's, yeah, it's like 280, 300 and straight, which is great for me. I know people can do farther, much farther, but for me, it's crazy. And then other times, it's like, all right, 70 feet, ladies' tees. <laughs> I'm telling you, man, it's all mental. It's all mental. It's confidence. Yeah. 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 Yeah, you. But it's it's a skill. Like you're born with it, and then it has to be sharpened. Uh, what is your? You enjoy watching movies. What's your favorite movie of all time? Then, if I, I was answering this the other day on our show, and I said Ghostbusters, but I put it along the lines, probably because that's one of the movies I watched with my dad, and I just loved it as a kid. But there's so many that it's hard to name. But I I do love Days and Confused mm. just because I think it encapsulated. My group of friends in the 90s that was very much the exact same lifestyle. <laughs> and I don't know if we were trying to relive the 70s or it was just very similar to that, but it really stuck in a st- a struck a nostalgia chord with us. So, yeah. but I felt that that was a perfect film because it it just encapsulated youth and rebelliousness and like being at that last step before adulthood and just kind of that teen stupidity that is really so wonderful that I don't know if it exists anymore. Mm. Like with the internet, phones, everything, it was sort of that last bit of freedom that yeah. uh, that a generation had, you know, that our generations had that I don't think will ever be experienced again. Yeah. And it's sort of a perfect spot on uh, vision of what that was. I'm telling you, the 90s is the greatest was, decade. Dude, I remember standing... The bunch of my friends talking about how the '90s suck, and I don't know why that stuck in my head, because it was the '90s. It was 1998. We're all just drinking at a pier, hanging out with all our friends in the middle of the hood, throwing a kegger, and it's like that didn't suck. That was the best. <laughs> it's like at the time we're like, little did we know it it, it would never get better. <laughs> High water mark. That sucks. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you, man. Um, you enjoy going to concerts. What's the most memorable concert you've been to? Boy, it's a tough one. Um, Alice Cooper was amazing. I bet. I really would say that. Paul Simon and Bob Dylan together uh, in wow. the 90s, that was good because you could still understand Bob Dylan. It's not <laughs> like now where you just like, what's he playing? I don't I don't know and I don't care, really. Uh <laughs> But it was, that was amazing, and uh, Ween live at Bonnaroo hmm. while I was on just a, a mountain of ecstasy was pretty good. <laughs> and see, okay, when you started to say that, I, I was thinking to myself, I don't know that I would enjoy a Ween concert. And then you mentioned the ecstasy, and I thought, nah, I could probably enjoy a Ween concert. Oh, it was so good. <laughs> and then, yeah, I, I loved... Uh, so it's hard to say. It's like one of those things where I've seen so many, like so many greats that yeah. I've been lucky enough. One of the best things about living in New York when I was on my last show was I'd be like, I'd leave and I'd just see it was at Madison Square Garden. I'd oh. go, oh, it's Clapton, it's Elton John, it's whoever. And I would just buy a ticket for me and whoever was with me and just go watch a legend. So, uh, but Jason Isbell is somebody who I, I, I really like and connect with and he was in the drive-by truckers and 
seeing him live was something that was pretty extraordinary, as, as well as Sturgill Simpson. Have you been to concerts in the post-COVID era? Who did I go see? I have, yeah. Okay. Um, I'm trying to think of who, though. I don't know why I don't remember, which is making me sad. Because I tried to go. <laughs> my wife and I were going to go see Counting Crows. It was going to be my first concert. I did the math on this since 2004. Okay, I don't really? Get, I don't get out much. Okay. And plus, once you see a Better Than Ezra concert, I mean, well, nothing you, can top that. Do you get better? You know what is great about Better Than Ezra, though? <laughs> what? Do you know why they're called that? Uh, yes, uh, it's a line from a book, unless you have a different story. Because there's, no. there's several stories. I that... think this is I think this is the real one, and I hope it's true. Okay. Maybe it's not, but I hope it's true. I heard that they beat a band named Ezra in a contest, uh-huh. so they named themselves Better Than Ezra. I am a Better Than Ezra fanboy, That's what but I've, I've never heard. heard that story. It's what I've heard, wow. and I really hope it's true. I hope it is, too. Ezra does sound like a band, uh-huh. so to name your band Better Than Ezra because you beat them that is, awesome. is like the best story. That's uh, why it's one of my favorite band names ever. Let's go with that. Let's yeah, go with that. I like that story. Yeah, that's better than the one that I thought. Okay, that's <laughs> I, good. It sounds right, though. I love it. Why else would you call it? Yeah, so. Yeah. So 93 was a big year for you. 93. Or was 94? What year, did, what year did their big album drop? 93. Yeah, 93, 93 right? 94. Because yeah. uh, it was the same time as Offspring Smash. Deluxe. It was like when Offspring broke out of like yeah. sort of the punk underground. Better Than Ezra kind of exploded. There was a huge coming of all these bands mm-hmm. that year. I remember it because it was when I was getting into music. Nirvana kind of came out. Is Even though they were out there... It, it sort of broke from being, like, somewhat mainstream to mm-hmm. just explosive, yeah. you know. Uh, Foo, uh, not Foo Fighters, was years later, but uh, Pearl Jam. Because yeah. we had had 10, but then that was, like, I think uh, Versus came out. It was, like, all around that time. Yeah, yeah, in the 90s. And I will say that, I mean, this is, this is nerd central for Keith here, but better than Ezra's album, How Does Your Garden Grow?, yeah, I know that album. It's, it's a great album. Oh, it's it's the only album. I can't believe I'm saying this. It's the only album, Dave, that I say the track listing was done in proper order. Yes. That I don't have to rearrange. It's, yeah. It's perfect. Uh, How Does Your Garden Grow Better Than Ezra? My favorite album of all time. Yeah, that's, for me, that's, <laughs> uh, is it South, South, Southwestern, Southeastern? I'm trying to think of Jason Isbell's album, but that's another uh-huh. album that's listed where you go, oh, this is exactly what an album should be. Right. And so many albums you listen to are like, boy, you're all over the place. Mm-hmm. It's been quite a story. <laughs> uh, I just, I mean, and I think the 90s, not only the peak decade to be growing up in, but also the best decade for music. That's my Yeah, take. a lot of people don't <laughs> like it. Nobody but I, I honestly, Well, people say that now, too, where they're like, well, music's crap. And I'm like, uh-huh. well, actually, there's so much music, it's never been better. Like, you can find all the music that's ever been invented. Like, everything's great. It's just you're only focusing on whatever is poppy. It's like, if you look back, there's so much music available right now. Yeah. There's really no better time to be alive music-wise than right now. how you can just type in a song or speak a song into a phone and then it's playing. Yeah, or you hear a song and you're like, oh, I remember yes. this, and you hit a oh button. Oh, my gosh. What was life like? Let me tell you, life before Shazam or Soundhound or whatever, you literally had to ask around, maybe call a radio station. Yeah. I remember humming a song to uh, a guy that I worked at a radio station. It was 1999, I believe it was. Uh, 
And I remember humming the song to him. Most obscure song, but uh, Radio Boy, how you doing out there? Uh, yeah. <laughs> anyhow, 96 Rock. I mean, th- all this music stayed in his head. It was uh, Freedy Johnston's bad reputation. I yeah. Mean, and I had no I was like, thank you. Thank you. Anyway. Yeah, that was one where we were asked on the show last week, what was your favorite one-hit wonder song in the 90s? And it was, uh, mine was Space Hog in the Meantime. That's and another like, underrated album. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> all these people were like, oh, my, that was it. Like, they had forgotten about it over all yes, these years. Yes. I'm like, no, it's a really good band that people just kind of forgot about for whatever yeah, reason. And there are so many great songs on that specific album. Yeah. That's, ooh, yeah, and there was just, and I was a huge rap fan. So for me, 90s was also an era that I loved because it was when the best rap came out, bar none. It will, I don't think it will ever get better than that, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a rap fan, but I can listen to songs from that era. Oh, for sure. You mm-hmm. don't. I don't think you have to be because I mean, that's when you started splicing in funk, like you know, it, it, all kinds of stuff were started coming out in that era that was new. Huh. Yeah, that's a good point. And gangster rap was just fun because if you're any way anti-establishment, it's pretty pretty cool to listen to. Uh let's see here. You got to tell me what's this book? Uh, Danny Trejo has a book called Yeah. Trejo? What? Yeah, it's the best no, book no, I've read. No. Uh, Danny Trejo, do you know who he is? No. From Machete, the movie. Oh, so um, yeah, again, let's go back to my premise. I don't get out much. Yes. Um, <laughs> let's try. Uh, oh, no. Have you, Do your kids watch any of like the, are you familiar with Robert Rodriguez who liked to dusk till dawn? Let's go to the next question. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, no. So what's it about? Well, I don't. Well, Danny Trejo uh, was like oh, a B movie actor. I know who he is. Yeah. He's all scruffy and stuff. Yeah, he's probably like 80 now. I know exactly who he is. And he like saved somebody's life not even yeah, too I long totally ago in traffic. Yeah, is. yeah, he's the best. Yes. So it's all about his journey from being a drug addict and a drug dealer, huh. going into prison, coming out, and how he became a star over time. And he talks about, I mean, you're talking about when he was like almost 65 years old. Yeah, he says like I had 30 grand in a Range Rover, and that was all I had accumulated after 25 years in Hollywood. And he goes, then I realized I should be grateful because most people don't have that. Mm. And he talks about how he gave a lot of the money away, went and lived with his son, and then all of a sudden the roll machete came and more stuff, trails, tacos, all this. Stuff. And you know now he's a millionaire. Wow! But it's all his all life. Yeah, and he was a guy who was on film sets because uh, he always would play the con. He was in like the movie Con Air, obviously. Yeah, he was in, I've, uh, I've seen him in so many roles. Yeah, Blood In, Blood Out. And that was funny because he's talking about being on the set of that where the actors want to stay in character. And he's like, dealing with actors can be a headache because they're like, well, I don't want to wear the bulletproof vest right now and we're not filming. And the director would be like, can you tell them why they got to wear the bulletproof vest? He'd be like, because if there's a riot, they're going to shoot you. And they're like, okay, we'll wear the vest. <laughs> and he talks about uh, meeting Edward James almost, who like would show up to meetings for doing Ameri- the movie American Me, which he's not in, and he would show up dressed like a cholo. And Danny Trejo, who came from, like, gang country, like, you know, in L.A., is like, what are you doing? You know, like, why are you dressed like this? Oh, no. And he decided to take, um, you know, uh, I guess you could call it, uh, what, artistic license hmm. with a character who's a real story. So talk about it, he was like a rape baby and all this other stuff. And Danny Trejo went and talked to the actual guy and he's like, don't do that movie. He's like, we don't want him to make this movie. So he goes and tells him, like, don't make the movie, dude. Do not make American Me the way that you're going to make it. And, the, and Edwin James almost is like, no, it's fine. I'm going to do it anyway. Okay. 
And then he put it out that if anybody was an extra or anything in that movie that isn't just... He didn't care about the actors. He's like, actors are actors. They're going to make a living. I don't care. But if you're going to stand in the background and you're a member of, you know, of our mafia, you're going to pay. So, I mean, Danny Trish, about like... There were people in the background sitting in cars that ended up dead because of that movie. Because of why? Just because the leader of the Mexican mafia... Edward James almost decided to make a movie about his life, yeah. but decided to say that his dad was a zoot suitor who raped his mom, which wasn't true. Oh. They wanted to say. And anybody connected. And he died in prison in like a very noble way, but they made it look like he died. Like he died in prison to protect all of his people. But they made it look like he died in prison because his own people killed him, like stabbed him to death. Oh. So, like, the guy under him is like, you can't do, like, we'll, we'll let you make the movie, but you can't, because everybody's got their hands in everything. You know how it is mm-hmm. in show business. And if you screw up this story, then and he talks about, yeah, he's like, right, this is not the guy's life. You need, first of all, his dad didn't rape his mom. He's not a rape baby. And secondly, he died standing up for his gang. He didn't get killed by his own men, change those. And he's like, no, I want to tell it this way. Oh. So, like, Danny Trejo's book is this very in depth look at, what it was like to be in a gang, a drug addict, prison, having kids, you know, everything that he talks about. It, it's one of the best books I've ever read because it's just a life very well lived and a lot of lessons learned. Mm. And it's just a very cool story from an accidental Hollywood star who came along later because they're making a children's movie. Uh, Robert Rodriguez made a bunch of children's movies where it was like Shark Boy and Lava Girl. Okay. And they had an Uncle Machete. So they just had Danny Trejo play Uncle Machete. And then uh, Robert Rodriguez thought, you know what? I'm going to just make a movie called Machete that's a B movie where you're just going around <laughs> kicking everybody's butt. And that's how he became Machete. Uh-huh. You know, and they're great movies. They're great fun. And it's just, he's, he's just a very, yeah. uh, very interesting guy. And so recognizable. Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm, I just, I never knew his name. A lot of people to, don't. Yeah. To, to me, he was just oh, he's the guy that's in every movie that I've seen. He's the he's always like the bad guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, favorite book is I Fatty by Jerry Stahl. What's, One of them. Yeah. Oh, okay. What what's that? Uh, what's that about? It's a fictional, half fictional take on uh, Fatty Arbuckle and his fall from fame. Oh. Uh, when he was accused of assault. A complete lie. It was a totally total lie. Yeah, but he was—he's a character that I've always found interesting because you were talking about like the little rascals and stuff. Mm-hmm. He was a guy who was the first person to ever make a million dollars in Hollywood. He signed a three-picture deal with, I believe, Warner Brothers. So he was a millionaire, and this is during the silent films. They accused him of doing something which he couldn't have done because his body couldn't do that. So they said it was a coke bottle, and that ended up none of it was true, mm-hmm. but it was. But they'd already put him, you know, and this is when there was just those pictures. There's nothing else. There's no other way to get news. So they ruined his life, but then acquitted him. And then he was still never able to be a bankable star ever again. And he died shortly after. And it's a, it's basically Jerry Stahl, who's an excellent writer. He was a heroin addict and he was one of the writers for the show Elf, if you can believe it or not. Wow. Yeah. So he, it's his version of what he, of real fact and what he thinks he went through. So it's a very interesting book because you don't know that it's all real and it's not all fake, 
but it's sort of like the emotional journey that he thinks like Fatty Arbuckle went through during this time. And that's what I love about the book is because it's this sort of interesting view of like understanding the human that he was and guessing of what it was is like it clear for him. in the book that okay what i think happened here no it's it's oh, very like, like dead on okay. yeah yeah it's huh. very intertwined between fiction and nonfiction. tell me about the app shout out shout out is a brand new app uh you can get it it's um it has more conservative people on it who don't want to necessarily go to cameo or write zezer on their thing um, but yeah, you can get anybody from you know me, Crowder, the Hodge twins. Huh. Uh, yeah, I, there's a ton of pretty big names on there, and yeah, it's the same. It's like a cameo, but for uh, okay, for you know uh, more right wingers, I guess. Okay, I don't mind being on there. I love doing it. Oh, so that's it's cool. just fun, you know. I bought like three hundred dollars worth of stupid costumes at Party USA, and just uh, <laughs> it's just fun to do, like make somebody's day really quick and if anybody wants one they go to shout out and i don't charge very much so okay shout out yeah all right i, I gotta check that out man that sounds like fun look for it's dave not, over there it's not bad yeah uh five possessions what would they be your dogs if, yes if that's a possession yes uh, you as you put in parentheses there it's a good point let's see your cadillac yes uh, we're gonna come back to your third one because i have a bone to pick with you okay um Let's see. Your photo albums, that's a good one, man. Yeah. Gosh. Uh, your sobriety, that's good. Yes. We got to go back to your Sergei Fedorov autograph uh, on your math homework, which, first of all, sounds very cool. Yes. I will just, full disclosure, in the era of Steve Eiserman, Sergei Fedorov, if you can believe this, growing up a kid in Atlanta, Georgia, the closest hockey team was the St. Louis Blues. So that was my team. Wow, okay. Uh, right? I mean, that's before the Nashville Predators. The yeah. Atlanta Thrashers have come and gone since then. Well, my buddy Dave Leguan, well, a high school friend. I haven't talked to him in a long time, uh -huh. but he played for the uh, for Nashville, I believe. Oh, wow. Yeah, he Very played for the cool. Wings, too. In Atlanta, you've had the Thrashers come and go, the Predators, like we just mentioned, up in Nashville, the Carolina Hurricanes. Uh, you've got the Tampa Bay Lightning. Yeah. But, I mean, back when I was a kid, the closest team was the St. Louis Blues, and I was such a diehard Blues fan. Yeah. I, I have – this makes no sense. This truly, if you know me as a diehard Braves, Falcons fan, the only jersey, jersey jersey that I ever purchased was a St. Louis Blues jersey. And uh, so I was in deep in high sure. school. Sure. And I cannot tell you, you could, how many times the Red Wings ruined my day. Oh, of course. Every time we'd meet them in the playoffs, it was just a nightmare. So anyway, so I grew to really dislike the Red Wings, Iserman, Fedorov. I just wanted to throw that out there, but I totally respected them. How did you end up with Sergei Fedorov's autograph on your math homework that sounds cool it was amazing and well part <laughs> of it is uh just as a side thing mm -hmm. we had the russian five which i met a woman who had a lot to do with the dealings and she made a documentary movie about it uh, to get them over these are kgb soldiers and then we also had bob probert who was the enforcer oh the yeah king of five so it's like <laughs> we, you know we, we had that window of just the craziest team ever Yep. But, okay, so we're in my friend's car, and I have no intention of doing my homework. And it's my friend Anthony, my friend Brett, um, 
and we're just, I think we might have been skipping class. I don't know about as high. And we look <laughs> over, and my friend's like, that's, that's Sergei Fedorov. And I'm like, it is. And he's like, we should go over there. And I'm like, okay. I said, go over there. I'm like, all right, I'll go over there. Was he just sitting in a car? Or what he was, was he? pumping gas at a gas station oh, into his Porsche. Captive audience. Yeah. So I <laughs> I grab my math homework, and I run over, and I go, I don't mean to bother you, Mr. Fedorov. Can I have your autograph? And he's like, yeah, sure. So he cool. signs it, right? Oh. And then there's this blonde girl who's smoking hot in shotgun. Yeah. So <laughs> she goes, do you want my autograph too? And I go, why? And I walk back to the car, and I get in. And they go, oh, no. yeah, they go, what happened? And I go, oh, he's really nice. And then I'm like, I think it's like trophy girlfriend or whatever, wanted to sign it too. And they're like, what do you mean? And I go, what? It's like some blonde girl. He goes, dude, that's Anna Kornikova. She's a professional tennis player. So I turned down Anna Kornikova as if she was nobody because I didn't know who she was. <laughs> that is awesome. <laughs> that is hilarious. Yeah, like <laughs> I was just. So I was like a teenager in high. I didn't care. I was like, why? Why would I want your autograph? So do you have the Fedorov autograph? I still have it. I think you can see it on my Instagram. Yeah. Okay. Like it's still on a green sheet of paper with algebra you. problems. That's what I wanted to ask you. Our math yeah, problems yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's just Sergey Fedorov and his and, and the great. number. And it was it was really cool. That is yeah. so cool. And you would see them every now and then just right around the tr- Detroit. <laughs> I changed my mind. Uh, can I have your autograph now, Anna? <laughs> yeah. And like normally I yeah, it was it was one of those things where you just wouldn't really necessarily approach yeah. certain people. We had that weird thing where, like, local newscasters were celebrities because, like, Mort Krim came out of there. And then you wow. had, like, Bill Bonds was really well known and, like, all these other people. So they were, like, Art Van Furniture. Like, there were these people that were, That's cool, like, man. giant celebrities, but they were also local. Uh-huh. So, like, you would just see a lot of that because Detroit's, like, the step before you get huge because the market's so big. Because it goes all over to, like, you know, all of Michigan, into Ohio, uh-huh. into all these other markets. Like, it's huge. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we it was always interesting to be around. So you never really would ask for an autograph. But I just had to because yeah, I had absolutely. never seen a Red Wing that close to me. That is awesome, man. Uh, well, macaroni and cheese has to be done right. That's a fine balance there. That's your favorite <laughs> comfort food. Yes. Okay, I like that. Is there any particular brand or any, any restaurant we need to know about that makes oh. the best? Slow's Barbecue in Detroit is just delightful. Oh. Uh, if you go there. And then uh, Dallas, a lot of the barbecue joints, very delicious. So if you had to choose between Detroit Barbecue and Dallas Barbecue, which one's the best that you've found so far? So far, <laughs> I got to say, and it pains me, Texas Barbecue. Okay. But Detroit... <laughs> Has some of the best food on earth. I promise you that. Hmm. People may not believe it, but remember, we I've are, never heard that. We're an overweight Midwest city, okay. where all the cultures came to work at the auto companies, and you can get any good restaurant you want in Detroit, from Cuban to Italian to, well, not Irish unless you like potatoes. But yeah, it's uh, it, it telling you okay. food there's underrated. Amazing. It's very underappreciated. Okay, very good. You're good at drawing cartoons. I am. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting fun fact there. Like, where where do you um, do you publish them? Or where do you? No, I just drew them when I was a kid all the time, uh-huh. and then now I just draw them occasionally. Oh, cool! But yeah, I just drew them over time, and that was one of the things that I would do. Like comic strip stuff, or, or cartoons? Yeah, like, you'd see uh, and... cartoons. Yeah, okay. like more cartoons like you'd see on Saturday TV. Morning. Yeah, or like uh, a Simpsons or one of those sort oh, of. Okay. Uh, yeah, more cartooning, not really the uh, 
extremely like pecked out superheroes. <laughs> <laughs> Who's your uh, like? What's your favorite cartoon? I guess of all time that really I guess maybe inspired you to start drawing. Oh gosh, um, South Park, but it didn't inspire me to start drawing. Okay, all right. I was much what... older, but I think my favorite cartoon ever by a landslide is South Park. When I was a kid. It was so much on, it was, you know, Garfield books, Kelvin mm-hmm. and Hobbes, The Far Side. I'm telling you. All that stuff. Oh, my yeah. gosh. That is literally, you just kept yeah. going boom, boom, <laughs> yeah, boom yeah. on my shelf when I was a kid. You know? Yeah, that's exactly that's what I had. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. So Gary you, Larson wrote me once. I sent him comics. I still have cool. it. And he sent me two unpublished Far Sides in a letter. It was really cool. That is super cool. Yeah, yeah. That's just the opposite of Calvin and Hobbes creator Bill Watterson. Okay. I was reading about him recently because I was thinking, man, I want to talk to that guy. And then I just read and read and I was like, no, I don't. This guy is such a recluse. Yeah. Ever since he hung up, and I guess if you know this, he stopped doing Calvin and Hobbes stuff. He's basically just fallen off the face of the earth. Yeah. But while I was Googling around and stuff like that, his brother is this gregarious teacher down in Austin, Texas, who his students love him. He plays the guitar in the gym. He seems like, and I thought, I need to interview that guy. Yeah, you know? of course. I mean, so, yeah, yeah. so anyhow, so I, I, but I'm, I'm so glad that you had a good experience with Gary Larson. Yeah, it was incredible. That's really awesome. Yeah, I was, I was young, but it was so cool that he sent that to me and like, yeah, it meant a lot to me. You should frame those and hang them next to the Sergey. Yeah, I had them framed, and then I put them in uh, just like a little bit of like a safekeeping like binder thing Cool. that I, I got to find. I bet. Because, yeah, I put it away when I was a kid. Because there's that moment where you're like, I don't want to be a nerd anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, but you know it's somewhere. Yeah. Right? Okay, exactly. And I always felt, yeah, but I always felt bad about that when I stepped away from things that I enjoyed. How much time you got here? Because, I mean, we've been talking. I've, I've oh, never good, had a conversation this long. You're good, man. So thank you. Okay. Um, I know you've crossed paths with tons of celebrities. Yes. I want you to tell us the story of your run-in with Mike Richards, who people would know as Kramer from Seinfeld. Yeah, I was at the Comedy Magic Club. This is years ago, and it's in Hermosa Beach, California. Okay. And I was hosting the show. And in one room, uh, there's a small showroom, and then the other room is the main room. And I was running back and forth doing double duty as the host and doing a set in the main room. That doesn't sound like a fun night. Uh, No, it's difficult. So on my show, I'm about to, like, in the green room is, people might know them, Dom Herrera, who's a legend, Kevin Nealon, Larry Miller, um, all these just huge, well-known... Daniel Tosh was there uh, off in the corner. This is before he was huge. Um, but just, like, this is a place where you would go where you see, anytime you go to Coming Magic Club, it's a lot of celebrities, a lot of people working out material, and it's, it's a great room. Ran, uh, ran very, very well. Uh-huh. And Michael Richards is there. And the manager comes up to me and goes, hey, you got to go get Mike's intro. And I'm like, who? Mike who? And he's like, Michael Richards. And I realized that he had just like pulled up in two handicap spaces and had his Mercedes surrounded in cones is what I ended up finding out because me in the parking lot, I used to smoke cigarettes. I quit years ago. I quit in 2012, but me in the uh, parking lot, it's like, yeah, he pulled up vertically and then it. Blocked with cones. He's one of those guys? He's an awful person. So yeah. he's now in the middle room, and uh, 
there's like a middle area between these where there's like there's like a couple lockers for like the wait staff and stuff and I get there and he's doing push ups <laughs> and I walk in. So I'm looking at Kramer doing push ups and I'm really happy. <laughs> and I walk in and I'm like, Hey, how you doing, Mr. Richards? Uh uh, you're going up next, and I was just wondering if I can get an uh, inch. And before I finish my sentence, he goes, doesn't it look like I'm busy right now? Uh, I go, yes, it appears you're doing push-ups, but I was wondering <laughs> if, and then he kind of stands up and brushes himself off, and he goes, what do you, he goes, what the F do you want? Mm. And I go, uh, well, I, I was just wondering if I could, you know, get an intro from you. And he goes, yeah, uh, and he, I go, look, I think we, it's getting tense. I go, we might have got off to the wrong foot. My name's Dave. I'm a big fan. I'm just hosting the show tonight. And I go to shake his hand. He goes, yeah, I don't do that. I go, okay. I go, what would you like as your intro? He goes, what the, what the F do you think that I want? And I was like, Seinfeld? And he goes, oh, so I'm washed up. I haven't done anything. Oh. And I go, trial and error? And he goes, okay, real funny. I was like, no, I just, I'm wondering what you want me to say, and you're just being hostile. Oh, and he's like, he's like, well, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go up on stage. You can just say my name. Don't worry. People know who I am. Oh. And when you're on stage, get off stage. Do not shake my hand. And when I'm done, you wait till I'm off. Then you come up, and and you do not shake my hand. And then you do your time. Oh, okay. So Larry Miller, who's like a hero of mine, is like off to the side, was watching me go up on stage because he was going to be after Mike. So I go up on stage and I just do like two of my closers in a row just before I bring up Mike. Your best stuff. Yeah, just for fun. <laughs> and it just crushes the crowd. Yes. And then I go, ladies and gentlemen, do I have a treat for you? Please welcome, you know him, Mr. Michael Richards. And I put my hand out with the biggest smile imaginable, so he has to come yes, up yes. and begrudgingly shake my hand. Yes. So the place is going crazy. And this is in the small room, so it's not even, like, full, so they're just, like, they're loving it. Then he starts doing his stand-up, which is the worst thing you've ever seen. <laughs> so after about 30 seconds, he's pulling a cocktail sword out of a glass uh-huh. larry miller is going that last bit you just did pal to me he's like that was one of the best bits i've ever seen i loved it and this is one of my heroes who plays a jerk in movies yeah he's the nicest dude you could have ever met that's cool and now a guy who's the nicest dude on tv who was the most awful person Golly. so he's swashbuckling in the air with a cocktail sword on stage <laughs> to no laughter to oh. just utter disappointment you could hear people cough <clears throat> oh it's terrible <laughs> So finally, he ends his set early, so I run up on stage to shake his hand again, and he just kind of, like, pats me twice on the back and runs off to his car, and I just, like, grabbed the mic, and I was like, wasn't that amazing? Aren't you all glad you witnessed that? (laughs) And I see, like, the manager in the back who liked me, though, who was just kind of, like, shaking his head, but, like, laughing because he knew what a dick he was. Oh, no. So this is, like, a couple weeks later. I turn on TV. (laughs) And he's at the Laugh Factory screaming the N-word at people in the back room. And Jeff Garland has a great story about that where he walks out after that, that night at the Laugh Factory, and walks up to Jeff Garland and goes, man, tough crowd tonight. <laughs> and Jeff was like, do you know what you've done? <laughs> that is awesome. I, I just, uh, I, I can't stand that when people that you think are, going to be this great experience and oh my gosh I'm what a treat I get to meet this person and they completely 
destroy your view of them in five seconds. Well, and most people are very nice, and most of the people like I've met my heroes. I've met Dave Chappelle. I've met all the, like I've met all these people that are amazing. Yeah. And most of the people who I was gonna be like a little afraid of, like Nick DiPaolo and all these, are the nicest. Colin Quinn. Like these people that I really admire Good. were the coolest. That's and then a lot of times the people that you think will be the nicest aren't. Mm. And that was one of those cases. And I've had people say like, oh, I don't know. He was all right to me, I guess. But maybe he was just like he does that. That's not an excuse. Like you shouldn't be deliberately demeaning to somebody because they're hosting a show. And the reason why I was hosting the show was because I knew it was a good way to network. Mm-hmm. So I could meet all these people. So instead of going there and doing the easy job of doing just seven minutes, I could host the entire show and meet people in Los Angeles. So I was doing the deliberate harder job that nobody wanted to do. Right. You know, and it it, it had nothing to do with where I was at in comedy. Mm-hmm. It just had to do with that's what I wanted to do because it was more yeah. of a challenge and I got to meet people. Yeah. So it's like for him to try to degrade me over it, it was just, you knew what it was, you know, and that was, and I, I mean, obviously he got humbled, but you can see where his ego was at for yeah. that to happen. Yeah. Yeah. You talked about a lot of comedians that you've, um, I guess, looked up to. Uh, I talked about meeting them. I think there's a story about your own comedic career that was, and correct me if I'm wrong, it was effectively blocked by Roseanne. Yeah, it's weird because we have the same agent now. And, yeah, it ended up being a little bit more nefarious than that. But, um, oh. yeah. and Do you want to tell this or no? No, I can. I mean, I don't. I never know exactly how to word it. We have the same agent now, and, and she she's a fan, but oh. I guess. But for a long time, I didn't think so. Hmm. So what happened was I was on Last Comic Standing, and... For I was I went into the semifinals, but they aired my entire set to open the entire show. Wow! So I had like this five minute prime time set. Cool. It was amazing. And Damon Wayans, who's my hero, because I used to watch In Living Color with my dad. He's one of my heroes. I absolutely love Damon Wayans or um Keenan Ivory Wayans. Damon Wayans was on the show. All the Wayans brothers, but Keenan was one of the judges, and he's the guy who did it first. You know, with I'm gonna get you sucker and everything. <laughs> So he loves me. Roseanne loves me. Russell Peters loves me. But Keenan goes, you're going to win the whole thing. It was an amazing night. Very cool. Next, next day, we're, at the, we're hanging out at um, Universal City Walk in California. And I'm just thinking, like, it's weird. I haven't been interviewed yet today. We're just kind of waiting. So my friend Tommy and I are, like, going on the Jurassic Park rides and stuff, just wasting time. I get a little bit of an interview some other stuff, but it seems a bit strange. And then the next night, they really, like, they put, like, a suit on me, and it's not really, like, me on stage, like, the way that I would dress. And I'm kind of, like, one of the last to go up, but I kill. Hmm. But I tell a joke. So I guess, yeah, put it this way. I tell a joke that she doesn't, she's like, I don't get it. (laughs) And it was a joke that was definitely very adult, but then me explaining it oh, no. was getting harder laughs too, where I'm like, oh. you don't get it. And I'm like throwing it out there and ah. the place is just erupting. Oh no. You know? And, uh, so you're feeling good. Yeah. And I thought she was enjoying it. And yeah. she's like, well, you're funny as hell, whatever. So that night when they bring out everybody in the finals, 
they bring me front and center stage. And I've been I've been jerked around in comedy a lot at this point. I'm front and center stage. I'm like, oh, this is great. Like, you've just brought me up to the front to move me along. This is cool. Uh -huh. Everybody upstairs is like, I had a bad set, whatever. I'm confident because I know it went well. So they call everybody's name and not they call the ever the names of everybody and I'm not in it. And now and I don't care cuz I know I signed the non-disclosure but it doesn't matter cuz I've talked about it before and I will again because it was humiliating. I went from like this huge idea of like almost breaking into this Hollywood thing to now I'm in the basement of the, I think it was the Ricardo Montalban Theater talking to a crisis prevention counselor. So, and she has no idea what my background is, but I walk in, and mind you, my act was about, like, sobriety, having a breathalyzer in my car, being arrested. So she just goes, do you feel like hurting anybody? I was like, well, kind of, but I'm not going to. <laughs> yeah. And she goes, do you feel like hurting yourself? And I go, no. She goes, and why is that? I go, well, because uh, I can think of a lot of better reasons to kill myself than being on television. And she goes, oh, okay. So I'm now riding back in a van with one of the producers. We get back to the hotel, and she's been the whole time being like, oh, whatever, you did you did great, whatever, you know. And finally, we get to the elevator, and I'm just like, F you, you know. I'm like, "You're this whole thing you promised was going to be real. And it wasn't. Like, you, you lied. Like, this sucks. And I know that the comics that put this together... Like Paige Horwitz was the producer and Wanda Sykes wanted it to be. But I know this was above them. It was it was an issue of with who I was and what category I didn't fill. So the show airs, it it explodes for me. Like the night that it airs, people are like, This first guy's amazing. Like it's the first time I'm seeing like critical reviews of how good I am. Next episode I get interviewed and I say some funny stuff so people are happy. Now comes the third episode. They don't air any of my set. And I look at it and it's just Roseanne getting mad at me. People can't, And people liked the joke. But it was enough to where it tricked some people to be like, well, I didn't think it was funny. It was crude, you know. But it wasn't a lot of people. Mm -hmm. But they made it look like I bombed. Oh. Which didn't happen. So... I got a hold of the network, Paige and Wanda, and I was like, of all the things you could have done, you had to make it look like I didn't do well. And it's like, well, this is how we edit it and this and that. And, you know, I'm like, yeah, I get it. But, like, you had to make it look like I didn't do well. And uh, they said, all right. So what they did was they ended up putting my actual set on NBC.com. Oh. To Wanda's credit because she's a comic. So everybody saw what really happened, which made me look good. So the stuff that I was putting out on Twitter and Facebook of like, I wish you actually saw the set. Like, I wouldn't say anything too bad because I didn't want to get in trouble, but that's not what happened. And I said it publicly. That's not what happened. And then they put it out. And a year later, they flew me out to do it again, and it was the day after my son was born. And I felt so stupid about going there because I didn't want to. And my wife was like, you can try. And I flew out, and I was like, I just, I went there, and I just half-assed it, and I kind of walked out, and I... It's like, can you just cut me from everything? And they go, yeah. I, I'm like, I don't want to. I don't want to be a part of it. And I'm sorry that I wasted your time. And I just flew back to be with my son, because I just didn't want to do it again. Mm -hmm. I didn't. There was no heart in it. I had been so broken by that. Sure. Because it was after like 11 years that I really thought that this was going to happen, 
and the rug was pulled out under me in such a brutal and unnecessary way that it really messed me up for a long time. Now, I didn't know that that was going to happen so many times again because this is show business, but that was like one of my first gut punches. It was very difficult. I can't imagine, man. All right, so if you can go back in history yeah. and meet somebody, Thomas Edison. Yes. Not Nikolai Tesla? No, Edison, because I want to see how many uh, inventions he stole. Because he worked in a patent office and just stole everybody's ideas. I've That is somebody <laughs> who, somebody I used to admire in history. Yeah. And then, oh my gosh, you start reading, and then you keep reading, and you keep like, oh my gosh, yeah. this guy was a terrible human being. Yeah, he's just a patent clerk who's a scumbag. He was? Yeah, and he's like, I invented electricity. Right, no, you killed an elephant, bro. Yeah, no, you Tesla did, and you were like, no, I did. <laughs> I tell you, okay. yeah that's yeah. why i like to meet him just to be like so what else did you take mm-hmm. that's interesting that's yeah. a good perspective uh i'm just glad that the car is called a tesla and not an edison yes uh, your most embarrassing moment i think we've kind of covered that there. yes um regrets probably we've gone yep. over that ground yep. is there anything left on your bucket list in your life that you want to i mean you you, you list a one-hour comedy special but how can we make this happen? Well, I just taped it in Dallas. So what? I actually having it. Yeah, we did two shows at a theater sold out uh, downtown. Oh, cool. And uh, so now it's in the editing process. So that dream looks like it's going to come true. Wow. Do you know when that's going to air? Not sure yet. We're okay. just in the editing phase, but I'm very excited that it's actually wheels in motion. That is so cool, man. Yeah. I can't wait. Thank you. Yeah. Let me know for sure, please. Uh, what's currently in your Amazon cart? Anything of note? Oh, uh, probably, definitely uh, a shirt from the Chive, probably with uh, Bill Murray on it is my guess, okay. or uh, some movie <laughs> on it, or a band shirt. Awesome, okay. Well, actually, most band shirts are by a concert, so most likely it's a movie shirt. Yeah, okay, very cool. And people can catch you on Twitter, it's Landau Dave, L-A-N-D-A-U yes. Dave, and uh, or I guess you could just... Shortcut and just go to DaveLandau.com, right? Yes. Cool. Uh, have we covered? I mean, my goodness, this has been such a epically long conversation. I appreciate your time so much today, Dave. Thank you no so problem. much, man. And it, we covered everything, right? Yes, sir. Okay, very cool. Thanks so much. Catch him uh, on Stephen Crowder on The Blaze. Yes. Thanks, man. It was awesome sitting down, getting to talk with Dave. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Don't forget, you can catch him on Louder with Crowder. That's Stephen Crowder's very popular podcast. If you enjoy meeting people through this podcast, I hope you'll rate and review it. Send your friends and family the link. It's at themikeshow.com. Next week will be our 100th episode. It's going to be a guy who needs no introduction. My boss, Glenn Beck. The 100th episode of At The Mike. I'm looking forward to sharing that conversation with you as we go through his life story with some tales maybe you have not yet heard. And that'll be next week. In the meantime, catch up on any episodes you may have missed. And above all, please go be free. And thank you for listening. This has been At The Mic with Keith, an independent podcast production. Head to atthemikeshow.com for archived episodes, sponsor information, and ways to connect. 